Hello and welcome to the weekend wrap for the week on Wednesday. I am your host Ben Davison and it is Sunday the 10th of September in the year 2023. Wherever you are around Australia and indeed around the world, I hope you're having a wonderful, wonderful day. And whether you're listening to this on Sunday or later in the week, I hope you'll find this information relevant to you. Today, I'll be talking about the voice referendum, some crucial information about that, the closing loopholes bill, some very important information for every working person around that, and of course, some upcoming and key things that have happened for working people in the realms of teaching, a crucial high court decision, and the fact that it was National TAFE Day as well since we last spoke on the week on Wednesday with Van Batam. First, let's start with the voice campaign and the discussion on insiders with Noel Pearson. I thought Noel Pearson did an excellent job, one of the best interviews I've seen Noel Pearson give on any platform. He was succinct, he was articulate, he was extending the hand of love and friendship and reconciliation. He totally dismissed and debunked all of the misinformation and mythologies of the No campaign. He really just gave an outstanding performance on Insiders, and it really highlights the difference between the Yes and No campaigns. I don't know about you, but in the last week or so, the vitriol, the hatred from the No side has really ramped up. The, the kind of projection that somehow or another the yes side is racist from the no campaigners who go on to say racist, anti-Semitic, ableist things is being quite extraordinary. I've been out there campaigning on uh, the ground and it's incredibly different. Online, you see these accounts with one, two, very rarely do they get into the double digits of followers who are just vitriolic in their hatred. Some of the things they say are incredibly offensive. When you're on the ground handing out, talking to people in your communities, it's very, very different. And I think that's what Noel Pearson's interview highlights, that while the media it's easy for media to see what happens online. It's much harder for it to see what's going on on the ground. What's going on on the ground is people are saying, yes, the number of people who I've spoken to at train stations and farmers markets who show me a yes badge or a yes t-shirt underneath their jumper, whatever it might be, has, has blown my mind. People coming up to me telling me that they're doing guerrilla yes activities in different parts of their local community. Just phenomenal. And yet there's still a group of people, substantial group of people, who really haven't decided. So the giving of more information that we do when we're handing out, when we're talking to our neighbors and friends is really, really useful. And I'd encourage you to keep doing that because if you're not involved at this point, if you haven't made calls or knocked on doors or handed out at the train station or a farmer's market or some kind of stall, get involved. Those conversations are actually working. I had somebody who was part of a couple who initially walked past me saying they were voting no. They walked into a farmer's market on their way out. The fellow walked past. The the woman stopped to have a conversation and she took the information flyer. 
you know, we can change people's minds. There are people who are soft no's, who are undecided, but in a forced choice poll are leaning towards no. Now, of course, the referendum itself will be a binary, but the question will be there in black and white. The propaganda, the misinformation, all kind of melts away. The precise question is whether or not you support recognising Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders as the first Australians in our constitution? And then do you support having an advisory body enshrined in the constitution that will advise government on matters related to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people? All the other noise, all the other confusing things, all the other misinformation and misdirection actually melts away in the face of those two questions because they're very straightforward yes or no questions, right? As Noel Pearson said, the voice will not be interested in advising on submarine contracts. The voice is interested in advising on remote Indigenous housing programs and health programs and education programs. That's what the voice wants to do. It's not interested in all these misdirection ideas that have been put forward by Dutton and Jacinta Price and Maura Mundine and Andrew Bolt. That's not what it's about. And I raise this because tomorrow, Monday the 11th of September, is when the writs are due to be issued. What does that mean? It's a machinery element of the process where the Governor-General has to issue the writs for the referendum to take place on October 14. Once that happens... You've got a week to update your enrolment details. Why is that important? Well, if you're a new Australian, that is, you've become a citizen since the last election, or you became a citizen before then but have not yet enrolled to vote, you've only got a week before the rolls close for the referendum. So you've got to get your enrolment in, just like if you've changed address. If you've changed address and haven't updated it and you go there on the polling day or uh, pre-poll, there is a chance if you give them the wrong address that they might turn you away. Now, often that's been able to work through on the day, but you don't want to take the chance. You want to be able to exercise your democratic right. Everyone who listens to this show regularly knows we are all about democracy here. And of course, it is fundamental fundamentally important that everybody votes and votes yes. I haven't seen a compelling reason to vote no. I've seen lots of fear. I've seen lots of misinformation. I've seen lots of what about if or wouldn't this lead to. I've seen lots of confusion. I haven't seen an argument that says by voting no, we will improve the lives of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders or the lives of of every Australian. No one has made that argument because that argument does not exist. There is no world in which voting this down improves anybody's life. No world at all. So why not vote it up? Because if we vote it up, it will improve some people's lives. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have overwhelmingly said that it will, 80% plus. On Insiders, the point was made that the black-on-black division around this, the Jacinta Price-Warren Mundine kind of faction, if you like, has damaged the referendum. And I would agree with that. I would agree with that as someone who's not Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander because the number of people 
who cite the fact that Aboriginal people are not united on this and use it as an excuse for why they want to vote no is very high. It's a very high percentage of the people who are voting no. The reality is, though, that no, no group in Australia is uniform in its thinking. If any political party got 80% as a primary vote, it would be over the moon. It would be overwhelmingly elected. There is almost no proposition in Australian history that has an 80% majority support. If you look at any issues-based polling that's done, whether it's on tax reform, housing reform, health reform, retirement reform, you will struggle to find an affected group that supports the reform 80%. And yet on The Voice, the impacted group, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, 80% plus want The Voice. If we have to get unanimity, that is 100% of every person in an impacted group to agree before we make any change, no change will ever happen. We live in a majoritarian society, a democratic society. That's why, that's why we go through a referendum process because it requires a majority of the people to support change to the constitution in order for that change to happen. Unfortunately, in this case, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people only make up 3% of the population. So 90% of the population will determine, in effect, the outcome on a proposition that impacts 3%. I believe it's incumbent on us, those who are in the 97%, to follow the majority will of the 3%. They are the ones who are impacted and the majority of them want this to happen. That's why I'm campaigning for it. So my friends are campaigning for it. Family members are campaigning for it. That's why it's been so positive to have those conversations on the street. What's going on online is, as always, quite toxic. But in the streets, on the phones, in the conversations, we know people are prepared to listen, are prepared to engage, and are prepared to vote yes. We have to have those conversations. And I have to say, Noel Pearson's uh, interview on Insiders is a phenomenal piece of uh, interviewing. It's a great example. You know, the hand of friendship, the hand of reconciliation, the hand of love has been extended. Let's not swipe it away. Let's embrace it. Let's take the opportunity and we can have a better, stronger, more complete Commonwealth as a result. I want to move on. Of course, we know unions had a big campaign day on Thursday uh, here in Victoria. There was a statewide blitz for The Voice. But of course, it was also a day on Thursday where there were some, quite frankly, a little bit of a setback for workers in this country. Hopefully just a delay, but I was dismayed to see Pocock and Lambie side with the coalition to delay minimum rights for casuals, labour hire workers and gig workers in this country. We've talked a lot about how much and how important it is that we get changes in this space to ensure that the minimum rights, the minimum standards that we as a society 
think that should be extended to all workers, are actually extended to all workers because we know that many, many casuals, certainly in labour hire and almost universally in the gig economy, those minimum standards are not applying. And in the most extreme cases, it's leading to incredibly unsafe practices. It's leading to deaths and injuries and underreporting of significant incidents involving people who are in vulnerable positions, either vulnerable positions because they lack bargaining power in their relations with gig platforms or vulnerable positions because of their reliance on services provided by gig platforms or in vulnerable positions because they are casual and they can effectively be dismissed without reason or cause. And so when something happens in their life, like family violence, they are simply let go rather than supported. The Closing Loopholes Bill was designed to address some of these issues, designed to ensure the minimum standards were applied, including providing protection for all workers from dismissal in the event that they were managing and dealing with a family violence situation. Now, there has never been a more important time to join a union. I know I say that a lot, and quite frankly, it's because the forces that array against working people continue to consolidate, continue to strengthen their position. You know, when we talk about competition in the economy, it's important to remember that one of the things that monopolists want to achieve by getting rid of competition is by undermining and weakening workers' bargaining power. If there are only three or four or even less players in a market, workers have very few places to take their skills. And we see this time and time again. Consolidation weakens workers' bargaining power. And that's what's been happening. It's been happening for the last 30 years, not just in this country, but this country is certainly at the cutting edge of capitalists consolidating, creating oligopolies and monopolies and driving down competition. And quite frankly, it's one of the key reasons you should be a union member. You can go to australianunions.org.au slash wow, that's W-O-W, because this bill, this closing loopholes bill, has now been delayed until February. This coalition of Liberal, National, Pocock and Lambie has delayed the Senate inquiry report until the 1st of February. This was hailed by the big business lobby, hailed as a significant setback for the government. And they go on to say, and I quote, full credit to the opposition and those crossbench senators who have supported that amendment to the timing of the Senate report. This is an absolute sellout of working people. Let's be really clear what this bill does. Creates a base pay and conditions for gig economy workers, truck drivers. It criminalises wage theft. Gives labour hire workers the same pay rates as directly employed workers doing the same job. If they have different experience levels, different time on the job, different qualifications, that's covered by the EBA. It's same job, same pay, not, not same experience, same pay. It's one of the few 
campaigns that's been run by big business. Because somehow or another, someone with 20 years' experience will be paid the same as someone who's just come out of high school. That's not what this bill does. What it does is it says you cannot use labour hire to undermine the agreed pay rates in your collective agreement for the different levels of work and different levels of experience that exist. This bill would make it easier for casuals to convert to permanent work if that's what they choose to do. And, of course, it would provide for more money in the pockets of working people. And let's have a look at how much money we're talking about here because at a time when the focus is on cost of living, big businesses try to spin this as though somehow or another passing this bill will be an increase in the cost of living when the reality is it will shave money from the profits of highly profitable companies. The improvements for labour hire workers will mean $511 million in extra workers' wages. Now, that is money that companies like BHP and Qantas are currently collecting themselves through a variety of loopholes like owning their own labour hire companies. They are just legally taking money from workers and transferring it to their own balance sheet. BHP is one of the most profitable companies in Australian history. This will not increase the cost of living for people, everyday, ordinary working people. It will increase their pay packets. In the gig economy, for gig workers, this will be worth $404 million a year. $404 million a year that should be going to working people that is not currently going in their pocket. So let's do the maths. A six-month delay means $202 million stripped out of the pockets of working people on gig platforms. That's a reality. That's what it will cost. The delay will also mean that minimum standards in the road transport industry don't come into play possibly now until the end of 2024. They've delayed the bans on discriminating against employees on the basis of being subject to family or domestic violence. And we should remember that this bill, for people who use digital platforms, where they have a high level of bargaining power, where they actually own their own business and they just use the platform to advertise and they actually charge rates above the award or above the sort of industry standard, those those workers are not impacted. The, the changes would be to give workers with low bargaining power, low authority over their own work, and who receive below rates of comparable pay to other employees, the right to get those minimum standards. It is beyond contempt to suggest that somehow or another, somehow or another, delaying money going to working people in the form of better wages, in the form of rights that will help them win better wages, is in the interests of cost of living. Big business has lobbied 
to delay this. Big business is campaigning to scrap it. Working people through their unions are fighting to get decent minimum standards. That's all this is. That's all this is. This is saying that as a country, the minimum standards should apply to everybody however they are engaged. There are some additional pieces in there to make sure that that's possible and that that happens. But let's be really clear about the core of what this is about. Because a bit like with The Voice, there's a lot of misinformation. And it's people who already have power trying to protect their position rather than trying to improve our commonwealth. BHP and Qantas want to scrap this bill because it will give workers who have since, in Qantas's case, 2008, not been directly employed by Qantas, the same rights and the same minimum standards as directly employed people. Companies like Mabel are campaigning against this because it will give people on gig platforms the same rights and the same minimum standards as disability and aged care workers in any other setting. Now, if you run a business and you use a platform and you can charge more because your services are better or higher quality or perceived to deliver more value, then good for you. If you're an independent contractor, this will not impact you in any way if you are truly an independent contractor. For example, Van and I do some independent contracting work. Nothing in this legislation will impact our lives because we are fortunate enough that we're not paid below award. But there are tens, hundreds of thousands of working people in this country who are paid below minimum award rates, paid below minimum enterprise bargaining rates through these loopholes. And the money goes into the pockets of corporate executives and corporate profits instead of into the pockets of working people. If you want to fix the cost of living crisis, if Pocock and Lambie and the independents in the lower house actually want to fix the cost of living crisis, they should be focused on making this happen. And let's be really honest about this other argument that somehow or another this will cost jobs. We are living in a period of some of the highest rates of employment in Australian history. We have people working multiple jobs. We have shortages of skilled workers in almost every sector. The idea that creating an environment where working people are able to negotiate better pay, are able to get the minimum standards of pay without fear of retribution, without fear of being turned over, if that if we create that environment, somehow or another unemployment will shoot up, is ridiculous. It's actually ridiculous. Unemployment is lower than it has been for decades. The number of people working multiple jobs is higher than it has ever been. All of these factors suggest that wages should be much, much higher. Why are they not much, much higher? Because the structural power imbalance that exists in our economy 
that is perpetuated by things like labour hire loopholes, by forced casualisation, by gig exploitation, means that workers do not have the power to make that negotiation happen. They do not have the power to make that negotiation happen. The mechanisms do not exist for them to engage in those discussions. What this bill does is it says we will set up those mechanisms. The Fair Work Commission will have capacity and power and a framework to give working people their fair share. That's all it is, their fair share, their minimum standards. So the idea, oh, this will, this will, you know, it'll add more, it'll add more to the cost of, you know, getting a pizza. You know, all right, well, maybe you don't get the uh, the extra prawns or, you know, the double meat or the extra cheese on your pizza. But somebody else actually gets to not have to work three jobs. Isn't that worth it? Isn't that isn't that what being in a commonwealth is about? You know? Oh, it'll 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 make things uh, more difficult uh, for uh, you know platform providers to operate. Really, because there are already some platform providers who employ people directly. They already exist. So how come they can do it? How come they can do it? Maybe they're just taking a smaller cut from the Commonwealth-funded programs that some of these gig platforms are exploiting in the NDIS and aged care. It is disgraceful to see big business try and delay this. And quite frankly, I am disappointed in Pocock and Lambie for backing the coalition on this. So join your union, get involved in this. This is now obviously a longer fight than we had hoped, but it's one we have to win because there are hundreds of thousands of Australians, perhaps some of you listening at home, who are directly impacted by this. And of course, our local communities and small businesses because the the people who do this work, they spend their money locally. They spend their money on essentials. They're not sending it to the Cayman Islands. They're not squirreling it away, you know, in the floorboards of their yachts. They are spending every dollar they make just to keep their heads above water. Imagine the difference it would make to them if this money, this $9 billion overall, was instead of being transferred to businesses in the form of higher profits was transferred to workers in the form of higher wages. That's what we're fighting for. This is a battle over $9 billion that should be going to working people, but is instead going to corporations. It's going to people who own multi-million dollar homes. It's going to people who own yachts. It's going to people who do squirrel their money away in offshore tax havens, who do take first-class trips overseas, who do own private jets. That's the people it's going to when it should be going to the working people in our suburbs and towns, the people who are struggling to pay rent, who are struggling to make the payments on their mortgage, who quite frankly are making decisions about which bills to pay this month versus next month, which meals to miss and have no no voice when it comes to these business lobbyists and these crossbench senators, other than the voice of organised workers, the voice of unionised workers. That's why we have to stand together in solidarity with them. That's why we have 
to join our union at australianunions.org.au slash wow and get involved in this campaign and say it's not good enough. It's not good enough for any political party to take $9 billion from the pockets of working people and put it into the pockets of billionaires and millionaires and multinational corporations. That is not the Australia that we, the Australian people, want to see. You know, there are some really key things that have been going on around the industrial space. And I want to give a shout out for National TAFE Day, which was on Thursday as well. Huge day. Obviously, TAFE is so crucial, so important. And the importance of TAFE has been increasingly recognised by Labor governments at a state level and now federally as well. In the first six months of the Albanese Labor government, Brennan O'Connor, the Minister for Skills and Training, has exceeded the target of 180,000 enrolments in fee-free TAFE. I always struggle to say it, but it's so important. Fee-free TAFE getting to 215,000 Australians enrolling. This is addressing those skill shortages. This is creating capacity for better economic growth, better productivity. And when the frameworks of power are reset so they are balanced, better wages as well. It also says that fee-free TAFE is helping people who are among the most disadvantaged. Nearly 51,000 job seekers have taken up free free TAFE. Over 15,000 people with disabilities and nearly 7,000 First Nations Australians. These can be not just life-changing for the individual and their family, but for whole communities. And of course, Labor is providing 300,000 fee-free TAFE places federally next year as well. If you are eligible, if you're thinking about a career change, if you're looking for work, I'd encourage you to check out what's available in Free Free TAFE wherever you are around Australia. If you're listening to this overseas, check out what we're doing in Australia with Free Free TAFE. Have a look at what happens in your country. Write to us. Let us know. How do vocational trades, vocational occupations get filled? We want to improve this in this country. We need to improve this in this country. And fee-free TAFE is one of the ways that this is happening. Of course, one of the other key things that happened this week was a breakthrough in the bargaining between uh, the New South Wales Teachers Federation and the New South Wales State Government. From October 9th, the teachers in New South Wales, uh, at the start of their career, and at the top of the scale will be the best paid teachers in the country. This is a huge step forward after a decade of Liberal National Coalition running the teaching profession into the ground. We know, of course, that 98% of our public schools around the country are underfunded. They do not have the resources they need. A big part of that flows onto pressure on teachers, large classroom sizes, people not getting the support they need to to teach and educate our children, and also, of course, teachers leaving the profession because they're underpaid. This is a big step forward in New South Wales. We hope to see other states continue to lift their game, lift the bar. Always in this country, we want to be lifting the bar in every profession, but certainly when it comes to education. Public schools should be palaces of learning. Public school teachers should be 
knowledgeable, wise, respected. They should have the resources they need to educate our children. The greatness of the nation is grown in our public schools. Mark Twain said that, or words to that effect. And it is absolutely true. Absolutely true. Even at this time when so many Australians are choosing private school education, despite the fact there is no discernible educational difference uh, between a private and a public school education. Public schools do more with less. Imagine what they'll be able to do when we fund them fully. And of course, you can check out that campaign. The Australian Education Union is running that. National te- uh, the uh, Teachers Federation of New South Wales is part of the Australian Education Union. You can check out foreverchild.au. That campaign is continuing to ramp up, and I know they'll be looking to get those funding decisions so that instead of 98% of our schools being underfunded, 98% of our schools should be overfunded. We should be having a conversation about the fact that our public schools have too much money, that they can't spend their money fast enough, that they can't get their capital works built quick enough, that they can't get enough teachers despite having the funds to employ them. Instead, we can't get enough teachers because we don't have the money to employ them. We can't get enough classrooms because we don't have enough money to build them. We can't get enough teaching support staff because we don't have the money to employ them. This is a significant problem that has to be addressed. And congratulations once again to the New South Wales Teachers Federation for their breakthrough pay decision. Now, coming forward, looking forward, Obviously, we've got the writs on Monday. You've got to enroll to vote for the referendum. In addition to that, there is a high court hearing on Wednesday. There's been a lot of talk about Qantas, and Van and I talked about some of the detail around that on this week's episode. Let's focus on the fundamentals here. What Qantas has been doing to its workforce for a long time has been wrong. It has been un-Australian. 1,700 workers were sacked unlawfully, according to the federal court. Qantas has taken this to the high court. There is a hearing on Wednesday. The decision on Wednesday will determine whether or not those workers are entitled to either their jobs back or some form of compensation. And it will be a definitive uh, piece of judgment. It will set a framework for workers' rights in this country. The question at stake here is, can an employer sack a whole group of workers because the employer believes that they will attempt to unionise? That's the fundamental question here, right? Qantas says, oh, we were looking at cost-saving measures. Documents clearly show that those workers were identified as trying to unionise, trying to organise, trying to get their fair share of the value they were creating And Qantas identified them for redundancy and outsourcing of their jobs to prevent that from happening. That's what the federal court essentially found. The high court needs to determine whether or not that was legal or not. Now, if that turns out to be legal, I would hope that we would be moving laws very quickly to stop that from ever happening again, because it should never be illegal for working people to organise in their interest. You know, we forget sometimes that it's really only been the last 150 years or so where it has been legal 
There was a long time where what they called combinations, that was essentially the early forerunners of workers coming together to form unions, were actually illegal. By statute, by law, illegal. There were places in the world, less so in Australia, but certainly in America, where workers who unionised were shot and killed for standing up for their basic rights, the right to be safe at work, the right to be paid a minimum wage. These are basic fundamentals, and sometimes I think we take them for granted. But we should always remember that while the curve of history bends always towards justice, there are reactionaries that would take us backwards. And if you look at what's happening in the US, particularly in some of those southern states, but not just southern states, I should say, some of those rights have been going backwards. And it can happen here. Hopefully what happens on Wednesday is that workers' rights are upheld by the High Court. That's what I'm hoping for. And hopefully we'll be able to discuss it on the week on Wednesday, at least very briefly, because it does, the 1,700 workers who've been through this have been going through this now for years. For years. Imagine that. Imagine you and your family having this hanging over you for three or four years, knowing that you did nothing wrong, but that your job was taken away, outsourced to a foreign-owned private provider, for lower wages, and you had essentially been fighting it for years. So my solidarity and strength to the Transport Workers Union and all of those workers who will learn their fate, not just their fate, but how that might impact the fate of all workers after Wednesday. Now, that's a lot of information for a weekend wrap. I hope you have enjoyed this show. Don't forget to like, share, you know, talk to people. Talk to people in your community. If this podcast helps you have that conversation, send it to them and then have, give them a phone call. Send them a text. Hey, did you listen to that podcast? What did you think about that issue on The Voice? Did you know about that high court decision coming? Did you hear about what the coalition and Pocock and Lambie have done to workers' rights, that $9 billion workers aren't getting? Have the conversations. That's what makes our democracy so strong and so great. And of course, this podcast will always be free to download and to listen to. If you do want to make a contribution, you can go to buymeacoffee.com slash week on Wednesday. Every dollar helps because it all goes to getting this podcast into the ears of even more people. Until Wednesday, when Bam will join me from Sydney, she'll join me from Sydney, maybe some interesting things going on there. Remember to be kind to yourself and to each other.